Well, hello everybody and welcome to the Adventure Science Podcast. I'm Simon Donato here with Chanel Mayer and we're very excited today to be interviewing one of my personal friends and mentors in the world of mixed climbing. It's Will Gadd of Canmore, Alberta, legendary pioneer in paddling, climbing, paragliding. I mean, Chanel, you love flying, you love parachuting. How stoked are you to talk to Will? Oh, I'm so stoked. I mean, Will's awesome. I can't wait to talk to him. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't know anything about Will, uh, you've probably been hiding under a rock for some reason, but if you have any experience in ice climbing, Will's climbed icebergs. He's climbed Niagara Falls. He's pioneered spray ice climbing, which, you know, that's a nightmare for most of us. Talk about clinging onto a rock face by the thinnest of margins. And I mean, Chanel, what's he done in the paragliding world? Well, I know he's flown the Grand Canyon, he set two distance records, he flies in the Rocky Mountains all the time, and he's flown across the United States. I'm sure there's a lot more that we don't even know, so I'm excited to find out. Well, I can't wait to hear it from Will himself. I mean, the man is a legend and he's got decades of adventure stories to talk about. But first, the Adventure Science Podcast wouldn't be possible without the generous support of our sponsors. So I'd like to take a moment to thank Merrill, Sunto, Farm to Feet, Stoked Oats, Earthcast, Smith Optics. You can learn more about us at adventurescience.com. But without any further ado, Will, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Let's dive into this. Stoked to stoked to hang out with you guys. And hey, I appreciate the uh, the oat shipment. You know, I'm still I'm still chewing through that, and my kids and I enjoy those. So appreciate that. Thanks for all you do. Oh well, thanks so much, Will. Well, um, yeah, let's let's get rolling. So, well, I wanted to start off by um, just asking what picked your interest in adventure and exploration? Uh, was it, did something happen when you were younger or were you always uh, interested or just wanted to hear more about that? Um, I, it, was, it was involuntary, really. I didn't have a choice. <laughs> you know, some people choose these things, but I grew up in a family with a dad who is very adventurous here in the Canadian Rockies in, in Canmore, Alberta. And every weekend involved some sort of mission, and I I I had to go and do these missions. It, it was no choice. So at an early age, it was involuntary. Dad, Dad was just dragging you out. Well, okay. So as a yeah. geologist, I I probably knew of your father as much as I knew of you in the early years because your dad's so well known for his uh, the Bible on roadside geology in the Canadian Rockies. How did that play into uh, your early years? Well, my early years were a geology course. You know, <laughs> I, remember, I remember arriving at school and, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do at school. But I took geology 101 and I don't think I showed up for any classes and still did very, very well in it um, <laughs> because I'd already had it all growing up. You know, the, the synclines and anticlines and, and different rock formations and everything else were were – that was sort of standard lecture fodder as we drove up and down the ice fields parkway and the other roads around here. And uh, so I, I got a really good base in geology and I, I'm, I'm not a geologist, but I sure spent enough time <laughs> getting the terminology ejected so that I could still use, use that information today for sure. But yeah, my dad is very well known for his book, Handbook of the Canadian Rockies and a bunch of other writing and, and information about geology for sure. Just before we, we get into some more specific stuff, I'm personally interested in how 
I guess that early geologic training maybe played into your understanding and comprehension of, you know, the challenges that you take on today, both on the rock or ice or in the air. I mean, reading the terrain and understanding the geology to some degree. How would you say that's that's helped you get to where you are and, and negotiate uh, challenges? Growing up, I, I learned the difference between you know, shale, dolomite, limestone, and, and sandstone, and metamorphic sandstone of one kind or another, and all these different rocks at an early age. That was like, you know, other kids maybe maybe learned cartoon characters. I learned rock formations. And um, so it, it, it helped me out in having a really base understanding of the, the major components of bedrock in, in the Rockies and around North America. It's it's good to know the difference between granite and and our usual junk show limestone here and and how it takes <laughs> gear and why and it, it is useful knowledge. Knowledge is always really really useful to have sooner or later somehow and and I was lucky to get a lot of it. But uh, you know I think to me those understanding understanding rock if you're going to be a climber or or do anything outside is is part of the craft of of being in the mountains. You should have a pretty good idea what grows there and and what the rocks are and what the animals are and how things move around and how the days work. That's pretty important to me. So, Will, how did you first get into rock and ice climbing? Well, I got dragged out as a kid. My, my dad would drag me out. And then I discovered girls and BMX bikes and, and, you know, more exciting forms of entertainment. And I didn't do much climbing in my early teens at all. I was uh, – I was – I got into kayaking on my own. That was my first really major sport on my own when I was 14. And I was really lucky to have some great mentors in the Jasper area who would, who would take me out on the rivers with them. And geology is useful for that as well. You know, a, mm-hmm. a, a granite river forms up really differently than a, than a limestone river or a shale river. You know, it's, it's a really useful bit of information to have. Um, so I got really into kayaking, and because of the climbing background I had as a kid, some of the more technical kayaking made more sense to me um, just because I knew how to use ropes and stuff. So I, I did a lot of pretty great, really fun kayaking in the Canadian Rockies in, in high school. And then, you know, the the rivers don't run all year most of the time, so I kind of got sucked back into climbing when I was about 16 and discovered it on my own. I didn't do much climbing with my dad in my teens. I just raided his closet for, even at that point, pretty antiquated gear. <laughs> He'd be like, where'd, my, where'd all my carabiners go? And I'd be like, oh, I'll get back to you on that. So, uh, so, some kids are stealing their parents' uh, liquor. You're stealing your dad's beaners. I like it. <laughs> you know, I did both, but he had better choice in beaners than liquor, I got to say. But uh, yeah, so that's what got me into it. And then, and then I just never really stopped. But I you know, all these sports go together. It's how the mountains work to me that's really interesting. And, and whether it's flying over them in my paraglider or kayaking the drainages or climbing or skiing, or it, it all goes together. Will, you mentioned paragliding. I love flying and heights. And I would love to hear more about your paragliding experiences and how you got into it. I was working as a reporter down in Colorado. And the paragliding nationals were up in Aspen, Colorado. And a friend of mine who had done a lot of paddling, was flying in the paragliding nationals. I went up there and watched those guys, and I thought, that is pretty much the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I, I got to do that. I went for a tandem with John Yates, who was a big climber at the time and had a climbing gear company. 
and uh, I, I was hooked. Flying is just just awesome, and and I, I basically quit competitive sport climbing and climbing. Really, I didn't do a whole lot of climbing for about five years. I just obsessed over flying. Is that when you decided that you wanted to do long distance, or is that something that uh, you grow into? And for the, for our listeners. Uh, I mean, Will has set uh, the long, longest uh, paraglided flight record twice. Is that correct? Have I missed any? <laughs> no, set the set a couple of couple of world records and paragliding. It's you know, it's like Strava or something. Everybody cares about sight records and stuff. So I've, I've oh, always that's what worked. it's all about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just interesting. You know, what could you do? So, um, but it, it, cross country paragliding tests your understanding of how the sky works and why there are thermals in certain places and not in others and what the clouds mean and it gives you a really deep understanding on things like you know lapse rate that's pretty esoteric and obscure most of the time but really matters in in flying especially in thermal thermal based flying just using the sun's energy like your stuff Chanel it's all that goes together and it's uh and it's it's just great so it's yeah it sucked me in and I'm still at it. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the one of the themes of this podcast is adventure and exploration. And, you know, just listening to you talk about uh, your experiences in the mountains, it, you know, you, you mentioned that you like to try and understand them and figure them out. And it seems that, you know, it's it's almost all elements, right? It's It's on the mountain itself. It's the melt coming off of the mountains or it's the air moving around the mountains. And... Is is that a big driver for you? Your your need and desire to explore, uh, or is it purely the adventure and the adrenaline? Well, adventure and adrenaline are both good, right? Like this stuff is fun, or I wouldn't do it. You know, if I wanted to be a scientist, I, I'd have. Well, I, I probably wouldn't be. I'm obviously ADD. <laughs> you know, you've got a PhD in geology, and, and I admire that. But um, you know, I, I failed out of out of organic chemistry when it conflicted with my lat with my climbing schedule at school. Right, so yeah. I, 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 I am not going to be a, a, a pure scientist. It's not my lot in life. Um, but I do love understanding things and, and figuring out technical problems and coming up with solutions that allow me to work with the world in different ways. And to me, that's much more interesting than just the adventure or just the adrenaline. You know, we, we flew, set two world records in, in plains of Texas because we could, we, we understood how the dry line worked, which is where the, the warm uh, coastal air flows into South Texas and meets the really hot, dry air of the Texas plains. It's called Tornado Alley. And if you fly on the right side of the dry line, then you end up with a amazing thermals. And, and, as, and as we proved and others have proved since then, you can fly long distances. And if we didn't have that knowledge and, and worked with people who understood that system really well, we couldn't have done those flights. And most of what I do does rely on some sort of hypothesis. And then you go out and test it and get your ass kicked and come up with a better one. So it's, it's a form of science. It's just more personal experimentation than the technical uh, sides. That's interesting because, you know, I, I look at the the projects that you undertake and I've noticed, and, you know, in our discussions with 40 Winters, that you're a very patient man. And I love, I love your mantra, at least that you gave us at the time, which was, 
bail early and bail often. And, <laughs> you know, with the, with the spray ice uh, in your Chamonix, uh, I mean, you, you say it in a video online that uh, I was watching, it took you five years before you nailed it. I mean, that's patience. It's it's commitment. And, you know, I, I commend both of those. It's a different mindset. Well, thank you. I'm I'm not sure on the patience things. My the patience approach. My children might disagree today. But that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these things are kind of like, one of the things I love about the mountains is it does force you to. They do force you to be a better human. Often, you can't argue with them. You know, I'm patient because that's what it takes. There, I'm not always the most patient person in life. I like to get places and and slow drivers. <laughs> give me my, you know, it's, I, I wish I were that way. But it, 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 the thing I love about the mountains is that they force you to to be maybe better than you would be in other environments, and you have to have patience to to do anything in the mountains. You have to wait for when conditions are good, and and then seize them. You can't you can't force it when conditions are bad. The mountains always win, and um, so I've I've learned that. It took some time, but I have learned that. Yeah, and I mean, today you wrote about uh, Uli Steck's passing and how you were friends with him. And I don't know many of the details. I don't know if you know many of the details about what happened in the Himalayas. But, you know, being in this world where people are pushing limits and testing themselves in new ways and striving to test themselves continually, sometimes this happens, perhaps more often than we would like I mean I, I don't want to push you too much on this but what are your thoughts um, you know just about life and death on the mountains and again you know kind of going back to the mountains always win yeah I really like Dooley I spent a lot of time with him in Switzerland and and uh, he visited visited here in Canada and had a lot of links to the Bow Valley where I live and and I, I really I really enjoyed him um, in a lot of different ways that maybe he wasn't well known for. He had a he had a really great spirit and was a very giving person. And uh, he became known as the Swiss machine, this sort of ubermensch of of extreme climbing, and and that sure was part of him. He went really hard and did amazing things. As there's he did just amazing, stunning things and, and wrestled with his demons. But I guess for him, when I think about him today, and I, I, I just really enjoyed the guy. He had a great spirit, and, and I first met him when he was you know, a relatively young kid working on a retail outdoor shop floor with a piece of shit car. <laughs> and, you know, just we've all been there. We've all we, That's where we all start and and make it all work, and and I and I, I admire that, and to see what he became was was just really really cool, and uh, lots of lots of Uli stories. And I guess and I never he, he was he never was that machine like to me. He was driven and powerful, and um, making something out of himself that maybe wasn't really that natural for him. You know, I've had the good fortune in life to hang out with some really amazing athletes and be they olympic athletes or or just the people who who won the genetic lottery and, and as hard as it is for people to believe that really wasn't early 
you know, he, he was, he tended to be kind of pudgy and he was always in a battle to like stay lead and stuff. And, and, uh, he wasn't the fastest always in the mountains. Um, and, and that makes what he did all the more amazing and, and takes the excuses away from the rest of us, in my view, to not do things because of our genetics or what we perceive as our limitations. You know, Uli just gave it until he figured it out and he worked hard. He incorporated a lot of sports science into his training and really understood his body. And, and he went deeper levels than anybody else I know has gone outside of maybe professional cycling. And uh, and he got the results. And that impressed the hell out of him. And he was just a good guy. You know, he was a, it was funny and, and self-effacing and just a, just a good dude. And I, I do miss him. And, and, you know, unfortunately, as you note, he's not the first nor the last in a long chain of people who have met their end in the mountains. Yeah, I was, I have to say, I was shocked. Um, it's just, you know, you don't, you don't think these legends are going to die. And uh, it's, it seems to have been a bad year for it. At least for you know, the people I, that I, I've been following. I don't. I don't mean to argue with you on that, but I do have to take exception with the surprise. You know, most of the people who play these games at a really high level, and, and Uli was playing in a league of his own. He, he he knew it. He wasn't blind. He was a smart dude and knew he was playing with a playing with a with a very sketchy situation. And, and it was no surprise when I read that he had died. You know, it, it really wasn't. I, I'm I'm sad about it, and I and I mourn it, and I and I grieve for him and his family and and friends. But he, it wasn't a surprise. Mm-hmm. And I think we probably need to do some. Yeah, you know, I'm probably a little wound up just because he he did pass. But but fundamentally, I think our relationship and understanding of these sports is kind of fucked up, and we need to reevaluate it. And be more honest with ourselves about these hazards. And Uli lived that. He knew it. And a lot of us, I don't think, have done a very good job of being realistic about them. You know, my friends don't die in car wrecks. Car wrecks. They don't die of cancer. Although have some have battled with that for sure. They, they die in the mountains. And it's not driving in your car to the mountains. It's a dangerous part. My friends don't die in car accidents. That's bullshit. And so somebody like somebody says they're surprised to read that a legend dies. I have to ask, really, you know, how much examination of these sports and of life is behind that? We need to look at it differently, or we are bullshitting ourselves. Well, I mean that that may be true. I think that just in the rise of of legendary figures. You know, they just, they kind of develop some kind of immortality and invincibility around them uh, to the public. And I didn't know Uli like you did. I didn't play, I don't play the same way that that he did or you do. So for me, there is always that mystique. I know what I know. And in the realms that I play, I have a very deep understanding of the risk, etc. So I, I agree with your comments there, but... I guess that's why it's a shock to me because perhaps I put him up on a pedestal that uh, you know he wouldn't have put himself on. 
knowing the no, risks. It's, it's good. And I don't mean to challenge you and push on you about this, but I'll, I'll do it a little bit more anyhow. <laughs> maybe, because things are, <laughs> maybe because things are a little bit raw right now. And I That's don't okay. I, I like you. You're a nice guy. So I want to push back on this a little bit and just, hey, and just say that at the, at the level Uli was playing his game and the risks he was taking his game in his game, they were no different than the average weekend person out for an easy climb in the mountains. They were no different than, you know, a, a, a guide um, taking clients into the mountains. It looks like it, but Uli was playing at a much, much higher level with a much deeper understanding. You know, he was a professional who spent 200 plus days a year out giving it in the mountains and knew how to read the conditions well enough to do the eye in two hours and 25 minutes. You know, we think we understand the game we are playing at the level we are playing it and that therefore we are safer. And no, we aren't. Uh, you know, it's it's a, uh, I, I, I'm really into this idea right now and I'm using it in some of the speaking I do of defensive pessimism. And I think we need a hell of a lot more of that when engaged in high-risk activities. And, and, I, and I would... You know, I, I watched you guys on your traverse, and, and I dug it, and I think it was brilliant, and I support it, and I hope you go back and get it. But very, very different for someone with Uli's level of training and experience to be in that environment than than for for us. And I, I include myself in that. The guys, the guy was at another level. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's so I, I I hate to disagree with you, and I, and I, mm-hmm. but I, I do love this. I, I think I don't think you or I or anybody can make these things safe. We can operate way, way below our level and make them safer. And that's where I operate when I guide or take my kids out or do things. I'm, I'm trying to operate a lot of levels below my max and, and in an environment that I understand and is relatively straightforward. But bottom line, these things are dangerous and we have to have that in our heads all the time to make us operate with more safety in these environments, in my view. Well, you just brought up your kids and we were talking about risk. I was wondering if having a family has changed the way you assess risk because you certainly are in high risk situations frequently. Does it get in your head and how do you deal with that? Yeah, it does. Again, it's, I, I try to operate at a, at a level and in a place where I'm, I feel very secure and, and I, talk to myself and, and, and remind myself in the, in the same words that I, I just used with, with, with Simon that I, I need to be vigilant. I need to run that defensive pessimism and I, I need to come home at night and I do everything I can to make that safe. Um, but fundamentally it's, it can never be safe and, and nor can life, you know, if we want to make our life, our lives absolutely safe, then they're going to get very boring very fast. <laughs> it's not going to be very interesting. We, we do have to take risks to, to do good things, and whether they're economic risks or physical risks, they're, they're necessary. That's what makes being alive great and, and drives us forward. But yeah, kids change that. That's one more thing in the column of how great life is that I want to come home to. So it has definitely backed me down more hmm well that's interesting i mean i i don't have uh kids we don't have kids yet but uh 
I can only imagine how my perception of uh, risk will, will change. And yeah, it always comes down to the decision, right? What do you think you know? What are you willing to take on on the day? And, you know, you have to make that decision that as soon as I step out on this, um, it could all go to hell very, very quickly. So Yeah, and it, and it's good to realize that. And, and if I, I think if we approach the mountains not with this attitude of we've got this all covered and, and managed, but of what am I missing? And how can I make this work better? And what am I here for today? And keep that goal coming home at the end of the day. Yeah. Then we can have safer days and better and, and more of them. You know, and the goal is to have as many great days as you can in life. You know? That's the goal. And we forget that. We get out there and we get focused. We're like, right, we are going to kick ass today and this is going to be rad. And pretty soon our goal becomes about doing something other than coming home at the end of a beautiful day. And I think that's probably what bit Uli. And it's almost bitten me. I've had some good luck when I needed it. Mm. So I, you know, having that, knowing what the goal is and, and hewing to that goal is a really good first step in any, any risk management situation. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with you. And the more time that I've spent in the mountains, the more my perspective on it has, has aligned with that too. Um, especially with age. I, I found that age has changed my hunger to some degree. I'm still hungry to get out there, to explore, to push myself, whatever uh, sport that may be in. Some sports, it still may be at a novice level that I'm really pushing. Other sports, I may have some more proficiency. But I think that the hunger is to do it, and it's less about the outcome now, which yeah. my younger self would probably be like, what are you doing? <laughs> well, the great thing about aging is that you're hopefully we mellow at a rate that that stays ahead of our deteriorating bodies, you know. And because yeah. there sure is a lot of you know today, I, all I did today is go for a walk and kind of process a few things, and and I got out there in the sun and I went for this walk for an hour, and it was great. And uh, that's 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 totally good, you know. Not everybody needs to do the some of the things that you and I have done. We're kind of weird and and that's okay, but I do think exercise and some of the things that you 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 push for and and I also push for. These are these are really important things whether they're done at an extreme level or my heroes in the mall cruising around on the Sunday morning in their tracksuits. I love them. <laughs> you know, they're so rad. It's like some to aspire towards, huh? If I'm doing that when I'm like, if I make it to that age and I'm doing that, I'm going to be so stoked. I'm going to have the best tracksuit. <laughs> Huge smile on as you're doing laps. You know, I love, I just love that. And, and, and I, I don't know. That's, that's, that's what's cool to me. It's all, all the rad stuff and everything. I guess that kind of fades away, but the, the ability to move and to be, be going after it in, in whatever way fires you up. That's a, that's a great thing. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you certainly have to take it day by day in this game, and the body sometimes says yes, and other days says, eh, we're just doing a walk today or nothing at all, and you just yeah. have to accept it, right? Yeah, it's, and, and to be to enjoy it and be present, you know. And, yeah. And, uh, I'm going to build a treehouse tomorrow with my kids, and that's going to be our activity for the day. Hey, that's, <laughs> that's a awesome. great goal. Construction skills. I've been building a, a very big treehouse with my dad uh, on Long Trek Ranch over the, the past uh, few months. So 
I hear you. It's it's a good thing to do. Hey, Will, I want to I, I want to chat with you a little bit about uh, some of your specific adventures. And you know, these are going to be broad questions, but you know, what are I, I want to know some of the best and most challenging that you've had over the years. Some of the really memorable ones. Oh, I've been lucky in that there there are a lot of adventures, and they. I guess I'm unlucky in that I have a bad memory. <laughs> you know, I'm lucky, maybe, because I forget the ones that go sideways. But uh, you know, I was thinking about that again, reflecting. I think current events are are, are bring me to that point more. But uh, I, I, oh, all the stuff I've done and all the places I've been lucky enough to travel with and the great people that I've done things with, the, the, I do return to the fact that I'm. Like what I'm proud of in my career is not really what I've done. Um, that's good stuff, and I'm you know I'm happy to have done it, and and the problems have been interesting and vast. But w- what I'm proud of is that nobody on any of my teams or trips has been seriously injured or killed, and that's that's what's important at the end of this is that we we go out and we and we come back and we have great experiences out there and understand more about the world than ourselves and the people that we're with and give her and and at the end of the day to to read the situation as it is and not as we want it to be or think it should be or have been told it is but as it is that day right then right there and and put it together and make it work in a way and maybe that means running away you know as you said in the intro bail early bail often but, but that's all right and, and to come back so i guess i mean the adventures are great but it's the it's the process and, and the people and the places and, and coming back that matter to me interesting yeah i mean it's it's yeah the process and the people they always they always make it right the adventure is the location but it's the memories that are made with the people um, and the experience of it all, but uh, there's one that I know Chanel would really love to know about. I'm I'm certainly interested climbing some of the last ice on Mount Kilimanjaro um, in an age where the climate's just getting warmer every year, glaciers are receding. I mean, you you play in the ice. What what was what did that feel like to you to be climbing a, a fragment? it's an interesting one and this is again having kids feeds into things different in different ways than maybe i would look at life without kids you know if you're if you're choosing not to have kids then the future is is maybe less personal (laughs) but when you've got kids and and you, you see how violently and quickly things are changing at higher altitudes and higher latitudes globally then yeah it's it's personal and i'm an ice climber and nowhere in the world have i gone and people said you know it used to be warmer here and it's really gotten a lot colder i've never had that happen everywhere i go in the world from greenland to to south america and east to west everybody says yeah it's warmer and you can write that off a little bit and and sort of say well you know it's only one degree and and this is really not a big deal, and the Earth's been a lot warmer. And then, you know, you have these little experiences like climbing ice on top of Kilimanjaro and, and glacial ice that has lasted for 
tens of thousands of years, and, and there's good science on it. You know, this is not some sort of mumbly obscure thing. This is like straight up, yes, we can tell how much ice was here and how it worked and why, and now it's gone. And y- y- you can write that one off maybe, but then when I go to a Lulasad in Greenland and kids are building skateboard ramps in town because the town is, is snow-free for several months more a year on average – and they're like, yeah, we're ordering shorts that we see online because we can ride our skateboards. And this is awesome. Oh, man. Wow. Kind of go, wow. And then I go to Sweden and where I'm supposed to go ice climbing, they historically had huge ice racing events with like trucks with studded tires in the lake. And the lake hasn't frozen over in the last five years. You, you put all these things together and, and it's it's inescapable and, and rapid and and violent and i just keep getting hit between the eyes as i as i travel around in the mountains and my maps are wrong and they're not wrong by like a little bit they're wrong by kilometers the glaciers just aren't there and the permafrost that used to hold the moraines together on the sides of the glaciers is melting and all of this stuff has happened before but never at rates like this and it's uh I look at my kids. I, I I think we're probably too late to really do a whole hell of a lot about it for them. What we can do is best manage the change that's going to result until enough people get worried about it. Things either get changed for us, or or we change them. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, you know, climate change certainly isn't going away, and it's not going to get any better unless we take some serious action. But um, it's certainly affecting all of us now. It's going to continue. Um, and it's really interesting. Uh, people who live in the winter sports world, such as yourself, are just seeing it um, much more dramatically firsthand. Well, it's hard, to, it's hard to maybe put a face on climate change when you read the newspaper that it's like, oh, it's one degree over 100 years and the, you know, the concentration of CO2 is now over 400 or whatever it's up to this week, you know, it's going up quick. It's hard to really, in my view, anyhow, grasp that. But when I'm climbing on the last sliver of ice on top of Kilimanjaro of what used to be a massive ice field, it's pretty darn obvious. (laughs) It's like, this is, this is like, it's just a smack between the eyes. And, and, uh, well, that that classic photo too is, it's so eerie. I mean, yeah. literally just that sliver in you. And, the, and that's what's crazy. You know, I'm used to seeing that sort of thing at the base of a glacier. You know, the glaciers pour out of the mountains around here. and They have that kind of thing at the base. I've seen that before. I have never seen it in the middle of a, a basically a desert of what used to be a massive kilometers wide ice field. Like, yeah, and it, it, it's a desert there now. It's, it's pretty amazing. So if I... Yeah, my future. A lot of my future projects involve trying to put a human scale and, and face on things that are hard to see in, in just numbers and graphs in, in a newspaper or online. I, I want to make them real. You have done so many incredible and inspirational things in your life, and you've been a pioneer in the adventure sport world for so long. What's next on your list? Well, we did a really neat project under a local glacier here in the Canadian Rockies where we were exploring the meltwater system underneath the glacier. And this started out, I thought it was a cool idea, and I partnered with a researcher at the University of Alberta, um, Dr. Martin Sharp, 
who had some questions about how water moved underneath glaciers and, and we were able to get down in there and, and learn some really neat things. And, uh, and he was, he was so excited to be down there and his, his excitement was infectious. And he was talking about, we've, we've, we theorized this is how it works and now look at it and got some great footage and, and, uh, and pictures that are going to help him in, in his teaching. And then just by accident, there's this kind of scum on the wall down there. And hmm. on, on ice or rock? On ice. And we're down in like pretty much the dark zone underneath here, right? There's not a lot of light that gets down there. It's under a glacier. Yeah. This should be pretty much sterile, right? Like it's ice. You don't worry about you freeze fish and you know, you don't get diseases, freeze anything, and it kills off most of what's in there. And uh there's this kind of stuff on the wall, and I just thought it was some junk that had washed in from the surface, but we found more of it down deeper underneath the glacier. And it turned out that these are these are biofilms, which you, you guys could probably do a better job of explaining than I can, but they're, they're sort of symbiotic life forms that are really hardy and can live in extreme environments. And nobody had ever found these underneath a glacier before. That's incredible. We, so, we interviewed um, George Karunas. Uh, he's in a storm chaser, loves volcanoes, and he was doing something similar except in uh, essentially a a volcanic pit it was a methane sink that uh, the russians had lit up to burn the gas off and they found extremophile bacteria i mean it's just it's amazing where things live it's cool eh uh and, and who knows how this stuff is is gonna play out but uh the beer said what yeah i should contact george and see if you know related species or something who knows but we went we ended up doing another <laughs> trip back there and and doing um, a sampling mission on this, and, and that's all at the University of Bristol right now. We're waiting to hear the results on that. So, oh, that's um, amazing. And and it's pretty wild. Glaciers are actually the people who work on glaciers are now figuring out that they're actually not sterile at all. There's a tremendous quantity of stuff growing in there, and uh, that has an impact on on the melt rate and and how. That works as well from the algae on the surface that increases the albedo and hmm. and uh, you get in Greenland you get all these really wild um, pinning formations on the Greenland ice cap as as the water on top of the ice is now warm enough to support relatively black algae and it's a feedback loop and it's getting much stronger there and so I mean, there's just all kinds of things like that that feed together and, and I'm working with a few different partners and projects now um, to do research on some of the factors on on water and, and glacial recession and how that works and it's it's an interesting difficult problem again so i'm, I'm happy well that, that sounds fascinating I, I really like that interplay i mean that's what we do with adventure science right it's it's take athletes who have these uh, the capacity to do more than perhaps the researcher pair the two answer these questions that neither one would be able to solve on their own so i love that well you know, so since you're playing in that realm, what do you see as the future of exploration on Earth uh, or beyond, if you will? And where where are we going with it all? I'm pretty sure the answer to that is well above my pay grade. <laughs> That's a kind of Carl Sagan question or something. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I'll, I'll you know I'll, I'll take a stab at it um, with the understanding I'm wildly underqualified for it, but the. Um, Hey, you live it every day, though. You're very well qualified. Yeah, the adventure part, true. But I, I hanging out with these sort of very large-brained scientists who who work on this stuff and and understand it is humbling. 
You know, I, I sometimes read the newspaper about somebody who is attacking these guys because they're, you know, they're they're just driven by their funding and all this, and and they're not. They're really really smart people who are working very very hard, and uh, you know, they can make a lot more money doing other things than than, than working on climate change and struggling for grants for it. So I, I, I guess I just really respect them and and don't want to throw too, you know. Just give them their their due because I don't think they're getting it in the media right now a lot. You know, with this. But anyhow, it's digression. So what do I think is going to happen? <laughs> well, um, I I think maybe for the last you know relatively recent history, we've been exploring the world. That's been the idea, and there isn't that much real true exploration left. You can get a Google map of just about anywhere. And we know what's there. So it's become athletic exploration in that we're trying to do things that are um, faster or farther or, or haven't been done before. But I, I, I'd argue it's not technically exploration in, in the historical sense. But where it gets really interesting is this idea of the, of the unknown. And we've created a really, really volatile set of unknowns for, in my view, for our planet right now. And exploring that is what's going to be really interesting and difficult and dynamic and relevant to all of us. You know, you put a few drinks in, in some of the climate atmospheric science people that I've hung out with, and, and there, it's not about one degree. It's about really radical changes to our base systems that we've taken for granted. And that is going to be complicated to survive. And how are we going to do that? What's that going to look like? It's going to be, it's going to be pretty. I think that's where exploration. It's not going to be so much looking outward at where we can go in the world, but just figuring out how to survive it. I like that answer. In, and I ask everybody that we speak with that same question because all the backgrounds are different, and. Uh, the perspective is different and, and and I think that's important because uh, there is no right or wrong out there but you know you're not the first and I predict not the last to say it's less looking outward and a little bit more looking inwardly um, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Maureen Ramo uh, soon and she is one of the top uh, climatologists globally uh, working uh, for Columbia so you know I'm expecting to hear some or I guess we're expecting to hear some very very interesting things um, from her with respect to what's going on with our planet at the moment yeah I look forward to reading that as well and it's, it they're, they're listening to it that'll be really cool I, I'll pay attention to your social when that kicks out and Make sure you had a great job, man. I love it. You get to interview all these really uh, <laughs> this is, this is cool <laughs> stuff and then do this stuff yourself. I think that's awesome. Hey, we have a we have a good life, and it's um, it's made better by interacting with people like you, Will. So, um, I, I I've had a blast. Uh, how about you, Chanel? Likewise, it's been great talking to you, Will. Well, yeah. thanks very much for your time and all that you do. And I think the adventure science um, idea is is awesome. But I hope we could team up and do something cool. And if nothing else, when I get down to Florida with the kids for Harry Potter, <laughs> and, I'm saying hello. <laughs> Definitely. Welcome anytime. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, well, thanks so much. Really appreciate having you on the show. It was uh, illuminating and insightful. And 
uh, it was raw and real and that's that's what we like that's what we're all about so again thanks so much and play safe out there enjoy you too. the treehouse <laughs> thanks you guys do take care okay bye well thank you so much for listening and i hope you enjoyed this week's edition of the adventure science podcast if you'd like to learn more about adventure science you can visit us online at www.adventurescience.com you can find us in the social media realm at adventure underscore sci for instagram and twitter or you can find us on facebook at adventure science technical assistance for the adventure science podcast is provided by Olivier Hubert Benoit, and Adventure Science wishes to thank its sponsors for making this possible. Merrill, Farm to Feet, Stoke Dotes, Sumto, Canada Satellite, and Earthcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.